Hello, everybody. Welcome to How to Rock Virtual Engagements. I'm your host, Alistair Davis. And today we have a very special guest, Seamus Byrne. I've known Seamus for many years. I first met him when I was uh, working in Oracle way back when, but he is Irish born, uh, born in the US. He's got both passports apparently. Went to school in Dublin, London and Limerick, Paris for seven years. His wife is French and Spanish. She has two great but exhausting kids, his words, not mine. And he has immediate family in five countries. If he wasn't so naturally modest, he'd call himself a citizen of the world. He's passionately fascinated by how humans think, interact, and make decisions. His big influences are the work of Daniel Kahneman, Jonathan Haidt, Sam Harris, and Steven Pinker. Stimulating, challenging, exhausting, exasperating, and sometimes even inspiring are descriptions he's willing to share. A uh, fun fact, He's danced Bollywood for charity in front of a thousand strong audience and made a bunch of amazing friends. He has over 20 years of experience in recruitment and HR, in technology and other industries. He's a director of Sapient Consulting in Ireland, and he's also affiliated to SNP Communications, headquartered in San Francisco. That's a mouthful, Seamus. Welcome. Thank you, Alistair. Wow, I hardly recognize that person. <laughs> Hope I can live up to that billing. <laughs> I met you when I, when I uh, first started in Oracle. I was a green 20-year-old. I left South Africa, and I remember coming to my cubicle in, in Oracle in Dublin, and I, I kept saying, database. Would you like to buy a database? And I remember you taking the Mickey out of me all the time with my accent. I hope I hope it's not going to happen on this uh, on this podcast. So um, I do remember that. And when you when you reminded me of it a few weeks ago, I did wince a little bit because I I I think obviously it was it was a, a very friendly Irish thing to do to make you feel welcome to slag you a lot. Uh, from your perspective, it might not have been quite so obvious that that was the purpose. But uh, fairly quickly, I think you you did feel welcomed. Even with a bit of gentle ribbing, um, yeah. there, was, there was there was a good there was a good good ambiance, bit, bit of crack, and uh, we managed to never come to blows. Although we worked very close to each other for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, sure, sure. No, we 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 didn't come to blows. It was good. It was good friendly banter. Um, in my pre questionnaire or pre form that I sent you, you, I said, what five topics would you like to discuss? And you said the elephant and the rider. What, what is that? So that's, that's a metaphor uh, put together, or I suppose that uh, Jonathan Haidt, um, a social psychologist came up with probably, uh, well, he shared it in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, and then went on to expand on it in his later book called The, the Righteous Mind. Yeah. And I think there are at least five topics, if not more, within that. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually re-listening to the book, The Happiness Hypothesis, at the moment. And I'm, I'm just once again reminded that it's by some distance my favorite metaphor. And what never ceases to astonish me is the difference between my level of excitement about it and yeah. the amount of excitement I'm not able to instill in other people when I explain it to them. Okay. If that okay. makes sense. No, I, I understand. I've, I've had the same feeling as well. 
so I'll, I'll, you did ask me, I still didn't explain what it is. So it, it's a way to describe how our minds work. Yeah. And it's using the idea of the elephant representing the unconscious mind, everything um, which, over which we don't have direct conscious control. Mm -hmm. And then the rider is the conscious, rational, planning, strategic element that we're more aware of. Mm -hmm. The idea is that uh, the rider thinks that he or she is in control, but actually it's the elephant. And the choice uh. of, of, of elef elephant as, your, as the example, as the animal for the unconscious mind is deliberate. It's something that's big, strong, intelligent, yeah. stubborn, and pretty uncommunicative. So it's very difficult to understand what the elephant wants directly. You'll mm. only understand it by, by observing. And yeah. quite frequently, the rider, the rational mind says, I want to go in this direction, heading left. And actually, the elephant brings us, each of us, yeah. in another direction. And yeah. the, the rider is left looking to explain in a post hoc fashion, a bit like Trump's press secretary. Well, yeah. we think the president probably decided to do this because X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. No. I understand. I've ridden an elephant once and uh, they are pretty uh, unresponsive if you don't know what you're doing. Okay. But in terms of unconscious things that are happening under the surface, the elephant, how do you think those affect the way we communicate? And I guess I'm asking this because you have a lot of experience in recruitment and HR. So you are probably more tuned to understanding how people ask questions, receive information, communicate. How, does those, how do those unconscious things affect how people communicate, in your opinion? Um, I suppose the, the first thing that comes to mind is that the work, and I think you've referred to it before, of, of Albert Morabi, and I believe it was in experiments in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, it, it's often misquoted and misused, but, but there's still some interesting lessons to be learned. He, he was investigating an interpersonal, particularly emotional communication, emotion-latent yep. latent communication. And he established that people derived meaning in the following proportion. 7% came from the words that people used. 38% yeah. came from the voice and the tone of voice, everything to do with, with, yeah. with the voice, as it were. And then a yeah. full 55% came from non-verbals. Yeah. So, so that, that, I suppose, was an interesting experiment. People often quote that as, as, if it's, it's a, as if it's a law of communication. It's not. It's an indication that although we think the words are incredibly important, they are. But as you know, Alistair, the tone of voice, the pacing, the volume is incredibly important. And even more so, everything else that's happening. So your body language, your eye contact, your orientation, whether you're folding your arms, all these things. Um, and as my son, who's now 18, says, you know, likes watching YouTube videos about this, our body doesn't lie. Mm. We can lie and we can make sure that our words lie. We can even maybe fake our voice, but our body doesn't lie. You'll sometimes see interesting examples mm. of, of videos where people are they're saying no, but they're actually nodding their head or they're saying yeah. yes and they're shaking their head. Mm. So it's quite interesting to see how our bodies sometimes convey a message we're not even aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you think this is going to translate into the new modern world where we're doing a lot of things now virtually? 
uh, with webcams or no webcams. I mean, you've probably seen the evolution from way back when, when you were recruiting for Oracle. How, mm -hmm. in a recruitment context, how has this changed the game a bit with the, the, the advent of virtual technology? Well, a couple of things. I'm reminded last week with, with SNP, one, one of our customers said, how do we read customers and buying signals or objection signals over video? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and there, isn't, there isn't yet an easy answer to that. You could say, well, well what's the difference with normal face-to-face? -face? But we're, when you're face-to-face, -face, there's so much more information that, that your subconscious is picking up about the mm. person that you're interacting with. And to a certain extent, the, the first thing I, I would say is that when you're interacting with somebody on video, it appears to be like a real face-to-face, -face, but we all know it's not. We all know there's a huge amount of other information that's missing, apart from the handshake, apart from the person's physical presence. You're, you're interacting with, with a, a, essentially a, you know, a two-dimensional shape on, yeah. on your screen, which is much smaller um, than it normally would be. So that you are, you're effectively starved of lots of vital information that yeah. your subconscious would normally be yeah. using to yeah. make up your mind. Yeah. So a couple of things there, first of all, in, let's, if we think about interviewing and decision-making on the one hand that can make for better decisions because you've got a little bit less for your intuitive gut feeling um, you know, knee jerk reaction mm. uh, aspect of your brain to be, to be jumping to conclusions about, about who you're interacting with. So that's yeah. one thing. The other part though, is it can leave it to being a rather um, unsatisfying experience. You can feel, I, I didn't get grips of that. I didn't get a clear feeling. So as Daniel Kahneman likes to say, we're often much more interested in coherence than in accuracy. So we love stories that hold together well, whether or not the data is absolutely accurate. We love good stories. Mm. When we're face to face with somebody, we can tell ourselves a good story. Yeah, I like Alistair. He's a good guy. We got on well together. He'll be a good hire. Yeah. Whether or not the data supports that, when we're in a remote environment like this, um, it's much more difficult to get to that level of coherence. Yeah. There is potentially, therefore, more opportunity to rely more on, on the data, but that's not something we like to do. We prefer to make big decisions based on gut feeling and intuition. So that's an interesting point. So we, we want a satisfying story. We want things to you know, validate our certain point of view. In the absence of that, we need to refer to data. So, you know, nowadays, and we're doing this during the COVID-19 coronavirus storm. You know, how do you think people in the selling game, you know, HR is a bit of selling and buying. You, you're buying and selling a, a person. Mm -hmm. I know that's a crude term, but you're actually saying to this person, all right, I'm buying your story and I'm going to sell you into this company. Yeah. How do you think people in the buying and selling game can get a more satisfying experience? What can they do to validate their points of view, their objections, their buying signals, all of those things? How can, how can they get a better satisfying experience in your opinion? I think I'm not sure I've got a settled answer on this. Yeah, yeah, but, sure. But, but one of the first things that, that strikes me is that, um, we're so used to doing things a certain way. 
it's so easy to slip into, oh yeah, I can do this, I can sell, I'll go and meet them, I'll use my charm, it'll be cool, I'll go through the normal stuff I do. Yep. And all of a sudden, in this new normal, for whatever length of time it lasts, we're forced to challenge our assumptions, and we're forced to adapt to a new environment, new to them, new to us as well. Yep. And to a certain extent, then you can say, you need to be a little bit more alert, you, little, you need to be a little bit more consciously clued in to the other person and to, to, a, to a certain extent almost metaphorically engaging with them so much that you're almost dragging them in a, in a nice way into the same room you're in yeah so that rather than relying on your normal patter or normal spiel or pitch or whatever that is you're saying hi Alistair connecting with you understand what's going on for you how you're dealing with this and let's make sure whatever I'm saying is really relevant and top of mind for you now. If it's not, let's reschedule. Mm. I need to be as laser focused and as clued in as possible to what is happening for you because I know even more clearly than if we were face to face, I'm running a big risk of losing your attention, of, of, of not making progress if you're not engaged. So... That's an interesting point. Are you saying, are you saying in effect that in a virtual context, you have to be less ego driven? It's less about you. It's less about your, your abilities, your bluster, your salesmanship, your natural skills of charm or whatever, but you really have to really focus on the audience and almost 80, 20 it in reverse for real this time and really, really focus them and elevate their status almost. I, I think you're right. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm somehow, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm tempted to think about Brad Pitt, who's you know, a great actor, really enjoyed him in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, et cetera, and he got all the, the plaudits and accolades he deserved. Yep. Um, in this sort of virtual environment, if you imagine Brad Pitt's got a, he's got a good voice, but but there's so much more to him than just his voice. So when he walks into a room, when he walks onto a podium, when, he, when, when the camera you know, um, lingers over him for a long shot, we get a lot, and we, a lot of his charisma, a lot of his, 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 his charm comes across. Mm -hmm. If he's at the end of a camera like this in a room environment, you know, a, a, in an average quality camera, talking to somebody else, an awful lot of Brad Pitt, unless he's a household name, is lost. Mm. And, and he will need to make more of an effort to translate the charm, the charisma that he has to, to the other person. And to a certain extent, I think um, you said it a few weeks ago, Alistair, one, one way to define charisma is the ability to focus on the other person, help them feel good about themselves. Yeah. And um, if you don't have your personal presence that you've relied on, that's been a huge thing for you to, to, to benefit from, until now you need to come up with another way and that other way is almost certainly by explicitly focusing on the person in front of you and bridging that gap right right so what are you saying that if you're a, a naturally charismatic person that has presence like brad pitt or a another person you can't rely on that anymore you really have to use that maybe even up your game so up your charisma up your your X factor, whatever it is you have up it, but also at the same time, make sure that you're upping the status and elevating your audience status 
and making sure that they are really feeling loved and attended to. Absolutely. And making the most of the medium. We, we both work in, a, in an online and a virtual environment, which doesn't even have video. So there's something, you know, that we, we both deliver training courses to a well-known software company mm. where we're using um, a platform, which is yep. all about the voice. Yep. And I remember when I first started doing that, I found that incredibly limiting and frustrating. Yeah. I, I said, well, who, who is this person now delivering these workshops? Because I'm so used to all of me being in the room and relying yeah. on my ability to interact with other people and hopefully build a bit of rapport and to feed off their energy. All of a mm. sudden, that's gone. And you're, you're left with nothing more than your voice and theirs. And yeah. initially, that's pretty frustrating. And then you need to adapt to it. Now, we do have both the voice and the image here. Yeah. But the, the physical presence is missing. Mm. And, that's, and that's a huge thing. Right. Right, right. So in the absence of the physical presence, you've got to up the voice and up the, the engagement, as you say, draw the audience in and, and try to get them involved all the time. So I'm wondering, you know, in, a, in, a, in, an, in an HR context, because I guess you are, that's what you know, uh, how do you draw an audience? How do you get them, you know, being fully engaged and getting all of them into a video conference or a, a, a telephone call? How do you get them? How do you, how do you extract the gems out of somebody? Well, I think one of um, SMP communications, one of, one of the core values is curiosity. Mm. Uh, I think curiosity is, is crucial. Another way to look at it, that there's an interesting book by Benjamin Zander called The Art of Possibility. And he said that the right response to any situation, good or bad, failure or success, is how fascinating. So you, <laughs> want to, you want to start with the person you're interacting with and realize, I want to know more about them. I want to mm -hmm. understand more about them before I start talking to them. When I'm talking to them in the conversation, I want to spend much less time focused on what I want to say and mm -hmm. much more time on what they need to know. And I will do that best by dialing up my curiosity, mm. by increasing my focus on them, and actually, to a certain extent, and you sort of put your finger on earlier on, by hopefully dialing down my own ego. Yeah. The yeah. more I can focus on the other person, the audience, and what's important to them, the better this is going to go. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, that, that's... I mean, as a salesperson, I, I, when I started working in Oracle, you know, as a salesperson, a lot of that was spoken to us or taught to us, but it was more lip service. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. you were taught that you had to listen and be an active listener. And, you know, you had these spin methodology questions and all of that. But at the end of the day, salespeople were full of bluster and ego. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted to, they just wanted to show people how much they knew. and. Uh, close the deal. Where's the order? Give it to me now. There wasn't much thinking about the other or elevating the other person's. There was no consideration of the other person at all. <laughs> I, I think you're right. So an awful lot of companies do pay lip service to that in, in, in our area, in HR, people operations, et cetera. They often say, you know, people are our most important asset. And yet all of the behavior from lots of companies would indicate that's not the case. 
Um, in, in many large companies, they do, as you say, they do pay lip service. And it's, it's not like they don't mean it when they say you need to listen actively. But there seem to be these competing goals. At the one hand, yes, you know, get on well with your colleagues, treat them well, make sure that you invest in the customer. Ultimately, what seems to drive behavior is quarterly results, monthly yeah. targets, achievement, etc. And so that often gets far more of the focus. Most of the individuals working in the organization understand how important it is to focus the customer listening. But as a cohesive, as a collective, it often ends up being, well, here, here's the game. Let's, let's win the business. So I think you're absolutely right. It was, it was only a, a few years ago when I started working with S&P Communications that I came across an organization which, which seemed to not pay lip service to it, but genuinely looked to own this and not always achieve it, but, but at least continuously strive to live out this idea of focus on the audience. Seek understanding. Understand your then make your content clear and your delivery memorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess uh, just thinking off the top of my head, if you if you're looking to use a tool like Zoom or Adobe or Webex or whatever the case might be, you really need to consciously, as a seller or a presenter, you know, draw the audience out, get their feedback. I remember when I, you know, I give an example when I was working for Oracle, you'd have a, a salesperson who would say. If you did a demo, let's say you'd have a salesperson and a, and a pre-sales or a technical person, and then the salesperson would go, "Hi everyone, welcome. We're going to do this demo today. My name is Alice Davis. This is my role. This is what I do." Da da da. Hand over to Johnny, and then Johnny did an extremely boring 45-minute uh, demonstration of the software, and then there was one question at the end: uh, "Thoughts? What are your thoughts?" And there was very little interaction there was very little feedback and it was it was almost it was so one-sided and yeah yeah, i'm thinking now now how can we make it better how can you how can you get that interaction from the from the audience so so one-sided and so seller centric if you think about it not customer centric yeah seller centric so yeah. so the focus is and even even using a methodology like spin which which, which has plenty of merit it's yeah. still how do we move the customer how do we manipulate them in a benign way but yeah. let's manipulate them to buy our product because we're pretty confident that it's good but we're yeah. we're not we're not we're not overly concerned about whether or not they need it we're not yeah. overly concerned about how they're going to use it yeah. our objective ug whatever it is. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's the wrong objective. Mm. Yeah. What, you, what, what you need to remember is once you do that, you're only really focused on yourself and your own agenda. And it seems to me the key to success in communication, but probably in life overall, is to understand that you need to focus on the other person for yeah. a number of reasons a that's a better way to build a rapport and help you to influence them but also the more you focus on other people the less you're caught up in your own head the less you're spinning around in your own head and probably the less you're stressing yourself out mm. yeah so there's yeah. a bit of a virtuous circle focus more on them what's important to them you will get a benefit from serving them there's a reasonably good chance they'll be willing to pay you for that mm. and Everybody ends up happier. Yeah, there's a, there's more. I can't remember the biblical 
uh, phrasing or scripture, there was one, it's better to give than to receive. Or it's something, That's something, it. something like that. And, uh, in, and one of my favorite areas in, in, in the field of uh, behavioral economics, or, you know, a, a Daniel Kahneman is, is, a, is a giant in that area, but there's plenty of research that shows you give people $20, you ask them to spend the $20 on themselves, and then you evaluate their level of personal happiness subsequently, a day later, if you do, you get one set of results. Or you ask them to spend the $20 on somebody else, and you evaluate them a day, several days later, and there's no comparison. So people are typically far happier once mm. they've spent time and energy and money on other people than on themselves so this is this is counterintuitive mm, mm, mm. but there's a lot of data to back it up so you know that's interesting because actually in a way if you craft a good presentation in a in a virtual context and i'm using the virtual thing uh for now because this is what this podcast is about but Mm -hmm. At a existential level, I think that virtual engagements could add a severe or a better quality of life to professionals around the world. Obviously, you don't want to be in Zoom meetings every day, but you know, as I was saying to friends of mine, how many times have you been to a one-hour meeting in said city, took the whole day to have the one-hour meeting and then flew back? So you, you basically wasted a whole day for one-hour meeting, which you shouldn't have been there anyway and you missed out on you know time with your colleagues or time with your kids or time with your wife or whatever so if you could maybe make some of those into some kind of a virtual engagement you should in theory be adding to the bottom line of your personal life and the bottom line of your corporate life definitely uh, I, no, one thing i go ahead sorry no no carry on yeah, I was just going to say that I think hopefully one of the long-term benefits of this crisis and of this huge disruption in our normal daily lives is that a virtual uh, and remote, um, we're, we're upping the quality and we're, we're, we're making more of it. So there's still always, I think, be a slight gap between the value of face-to-face -face yeah. and, and, and everything else, but there'll be, there'll be less of a gap. So. Yeah. So you'll be, it'll be much closer. So you'll be saying, well, oh, I'm willing to travel, but, but, but only if, if we can't replicate what we're looking for virtually. If we can yeah. do it virtually, let's do that. Um, yeah. And there is, again, there's some interesting research. If you meet people face to face, the value of that in terms of the rapport that you build can last 12 to 18 months. So you can yeah. continue to have remote interactions and still remember and benefit from that face to face interaction you had for quite a long yeah. time afterwards. You don't yeah. need to people meet them face to face every time. The first time is probably good. You know, we, we know each other. We, we, we've worked together quite a lot. So um, going back online like this, it, it's not too difficult. But if, if no. you meet someone for the first time, the very first time, getting to know them is crucial. After that, an awful lot of your interactions can be done remotely. That's a very interesting point. I mean, is there any data or science that backs up how how long that rapport lasts you're saying 12 to 18 months that there there no doubt there is uh, i do remember it being mentioned in a podcast by sam harris and he was he was interviewing somebody and it, it was just it was just uh, vocal uh, audio he wasn't using video and mm. he was just saying it was interesting how in some ways it can repli replicate the experience for the listener a little bit better when you're only doing when you don't have the video turned on 
because what your experience as an in, as an interviewer and interviewee is mm. pretty much exactly what the audience listeners are going to get. Whereas if, if you look at something like they say Joe Rogan's podcast, it's mm. video. That's fine. Mm. If you only listen to that, you might miss out a little bit on some of the the interaction of the, the guests in the room. Okay. Yeah. So it was, and it was in in a particular podcast talking about that that whoever he was interviewing said, and by the way, I believe um, this translates for, for 12 to 18 months. Now who said it and what the data was? I can't remember. Uh, it was definitely in a, a podcast by Sam Harris. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. I'm making a note. I'll need to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I guess, I guess the planet will take a break because you know, how, if, you, if you think about the CO2 emissions, the amount of time wasting, and I'm sure some clever consultant is going to do an analysis on this and write a piece on it in, in, in looking at people's time and expenses and bottom line. There's probably an equation out there that says meet customer one time, thereafter do virtual, and if you want to close the deal, do it face-to-face. Time saved x a number of hours dollars saved x number of dollars i mean it should be quite a bit yeah i think you're probably right so right at the beginning and maybe right at the end when you're closing the deal there's an element of celebration maybe you're getting over the line yeah and maybe it may be some haggling negotiation and that that's probably best done face to face Uh, but you're probably right yeah that no no doubt there is a uh, there are some economies to be had there and then i guess also in the middle phase, you could also do, you know, building on that point of making the audience feel special and dragging them along. You could use some of the tools virtually like doing polls. So you could, you could get a poll going and say, what are your thoughts on the software out of 10, you know, mm-hmm. and you can make it anonymous. Yeah. So instead of, so in that way, it's actually more powerful because if you were sitting around a boardroom table and you say, Seamus, what are your thoughts on this demo? And you're going, Oh my God, it was so bad. Uh, six, <laughs> but you actually want to say three. Yeah. That, yes. And then, um, so that in some ways it's, it's a little bit reminiscent of uh, a quote. I, I love that Henry Ford, I think said, if, if, if he'd asked the customer, they would have told him they wanted a faster horse. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, so to a certain extent we're, we're, we're looking to turn, virtual into an approximation you know a horse that's as much like the current face-to-face as possible and that's that's a good first step but actually virtual loses some of what you get face-to-face but offers an awful lot more and i'm not sure we've started to harness that yet things like pose things like the other things you know other things you can do people use virtual backdrops in zoom for example there's so much more that you can probably do virtually to not necessarily completely compensate for the, for the value get face to face, but to enhance that experience to, and, and make it in, in, in many ways even better. You know, what I was thinking of, I just, I just yesterday or the day before I had an epiphany. I don't know if it was an epiphany. <laughs> Could be a bad epiphany. <laughs> you know, you, if, you did a, if you did a virtual meeting, let's say, and you had 10 execs from all over the world for some big, fancy customer engagement, you could almost pay a comedian to do a five minute set to come online, do his five minute set, get the crowd all warmed up and relaxed. And then he disappears and then they carry on with the business. I mean, you could do that, right? You could. 
it, 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 it's quite maverick and unheard of, but what it does is it kind of gets people maybe a bit more relaxed, a bit more in a bit more of a cheerful mood. It's only five minutes. And afterwards, they'll go, okay, that's quite cool. Why don't we, uh, okay, let's get down to business. I think that's, that's I, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I don't know if the data is supportive. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that's currently hugely lacking and missing. Uh, there, there is an opportunity now people to say, well, listen, the good news is we've got much more time to focus on work. So let's get down to business. We're all busy people. Let's make this call as, as short as possible, as efficient as possible. Yeah. And actually what you need to do, because you don't have other people in the room, other warm bodies to interact with, you need to make, more, make a more explicit effort to get everybody warmed up. Community and connection are, if anything, even more important. We, mm. we don't have that um, subconscious sense of connection with people of being in the same room so we need to make it a bit more explicit let's let's all watch a comedian that we love and have a bit of fun and get more warmed up and make that meeting more productive yeah yeah i mean uh, there's it could be a music show you mean it, it, what if you you're talking to a big ceo of a fortune 500 company or whatever and it's a big meeting it's a big deal you could get his favorite guy or artist to play a song or, or if it's a comedian or whatever or an, a poet uh, anybody to get in front of that meeting and and sort of just mm -hmm. really take it to the next level i mean i think anybody would be impressed <laughs> they would and just right now what's good is because we're, we're all learning this is new to everybody people are a little bit more open right now to how it can be done better in the face-to-face -face meetings, lots of people are in a certain habit. They're a, certain, they're a little bit jaded. They're yeah. a little bit fed up of face-to-face -face and say, oh, yeah, we've tried that. We tried this. They're just boring. What are you going to do? Now yeah. we're all learning, you know, Zoom in particular, but lots of other platforms. We're a little bit more open and receptive. I don't know how long that's going to last, but just right now, trying those things, you know, people are probably a little bit more willing to say, let's give it a go. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting topics. And uh, yeah, failures. I mean, uh, what about a past failure that you've uh, had and what did you learn from it? So you did ask me that rather um, invasive, existentially challenging list of questions before this. So I'm still recovering from that. Um, and in a moment of weakness, I shared an example. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go there, I think, uh, provided <laughs> I have the opportunity to, 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 uh, have opp to edit this post-recording. But the, the, example, the first example that came to mind was something that happened you know, almost 20 years ago now. Um, so 19, 18, 19 years ago. And um, it was at one of my best friend's weddings. I'm not going to say the name, but mm. any, all the people who were there remember it well. Uh, I, was, I was best man at the wedding. Um, unusually, it was a joint best man. There were, there were two best men, which is definitely unusual. Uh, and we were um, going to be delivering a speech to a, to a rather colorful, entertaining, um, larger-than-life character. Glad to say he's still my friend, just about. Uh, no, still a good friend. And uh, we were going to have lots of fun. Uh, and I, I gave a best man speech there in conjunction with my, my partner in crime, the other best man. And it didn't go down, let's say, as well as I would have liked. 
Right. Um, I think that'd be safe to say to, to such an extent that the brother of the bride felt compelled to, to intervene, to turn all, all the lights, to grab the microphone, start the music uh, <laughs> while, while I was still mid speech. Now that might feel, that might sound a, a rather abrupt thing to do. It certainly felt like that to me. However, that was definitely the popular choice at the time. There was a suspicion that I was going to launch into one of these very, very uh, uncouth and poorly thought out um, dissections of my, my, my best friend's previous sexual exploits. I wasn't going to, but I was heavily hinting at it and having lots of fun with that. I, I rather naively underestimated the the concern and the conservatism of, of many sections of the, of the crowd, one. And the fact that the speech has already gone a long time, it was nearly midnight, um, and people were a little bit fed up. And um, guys who liked the sound of their own voice, me in particular, um, had been up there long enough, so it was time to move on to something else. So I must say that was probably one of the most acutely embarrassing moments of my life to date. I'm hoping not to replicate it. Uh, I did recover from it fairly quickly. But it did, it did have an, give me an opportunity to, to learn um, firsthand how incredibly important it is to, to know your audience and to not take them for granted, let's say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's such a lot to unpack there as well. Um, but uh, I think, uh, what, what, else, what else would you like, to, what, do you like to leave us with one final thought, one final pearl of, of wisdom when it comes to communication in, in the virtual context? I, I really love that question, Alistair. Pearl of wisdom, no pressure whatsoever. Just is choose your next point carefully, Seamus. It better be good. Um, so I, I suppose I, I, the, the pearl of wisdom is something essentially just repeating again and again uh, two ideas. One is your audience. It's all about the other person or the other people. Focus on your audience. Mm -hmm. And in that, as a constant, almost mantra-like reminder on a daily basis, and maybe even more so if you're me, focus more on what they need to know than what you want to say. Yeah. And no doubt I'll find, as if, if, I, if I'm ever brave enough to listen back to this interview, that <laughs> I've, I've failed that test miserably once again. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's still a very useful thing to remind yourself of daily, if not more so. No, no, I think you, you didn't fail miserably. I think uh, you've shared many pearls of wisdom and i think uh, you've unpacked quite a few interesting ideas with regards to communication and the modern communication and virtual communication which i think um definitely going to go and research i mean the the point about the 12 to 18 months of rapport being or how long rapport lasts is quite interesting it's very very interesting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's very very cool um yeah so I think unless you have anything more to say, I think that's, uh, that'll bring us to the end of, of the interview. I did say 45 minutes and I think we've done 45 minutes. Wow. That flew by. Yeah. 43 so, uh, minutes and 12 seconds. Uh, I, I, I don't have anything further that I could say meets the, the requirement of Pearl of Wisdom. I, I, it's, it's, been, it's been a pleasant experience. Thank you very much for, uh, 
for for moving things forward and for for all those interesting challenging questions alistair um no. and uh, one th one thing I'd, I'd love to have a further conversation with you where we're almost just riffing as it were uh, and just so building even more so building on each other's ideas I, I i love that idea of of sharing and building and sharing and building so taking active listening a stage further i think maybe mm. that's something. love to give that a go sure sure i'm going to stop recording now